I'm Professor Alon ben Meir, and this is On the Issues. My guest today is Daisy Khan, Executive Director of the Women Islamic Initiative in Spirituality and Equality. Uh, formerly, Daisy served as Executive Director of American Society for Muslim Advancement, where she spent the last 18 years creating groundbreaking intra- and interfaith programs based on cultural and religious harmony through interfaith collaboration. You can find her full bio on the page of this episode. So thank you so much, Daisy, for taking the time. I'm really delighted to have this conversation with you, and I know that whoever will listen to it is going to learn something from you, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Alan, for inviting me. Really excited to be here with your audience. So anyway, I know that you have a number of very important focuses on which you've been uh, talking, writing, great deal, uh, preaching, and your voice has been heard uh, quite, uh, you know, in many places. But let, let me begin by um, asking you something about that's specifically, especially important to you, and that's the role of women. Mm in conflict resolution. Mm. And I know you've been talking about it and trying to promote the whole notion that women's role is a critically important, and, and I think you and I agree that has not been fully utilized yet mm. in the search for resolution to mm. specific conflict. What, what is your take? What would you, where would you start? What would you like to advance in order to make people, listeners, those who specifically deal with conflict resolution, to understand that a woman is a great asset that has not been fully utilized mm. and something has to change. What is going to take? Yeah. Well, I think, Alon, sometimes we have to look back in history to move forward, and that's what I did with my own work. I had to, like, find sources and historical references in my own faith tradition to see what women had done before me, because as modern women living in contemporary societies, we think that the work we're doing today to advance women is actually just uniquely to our situation. But the reality is that women from the earliest of times, from all of our faith traditions, have been very active in the communities, you know, Absolutely, advancing yeah. communities, right? So mm -hmm. creating progress. But really fundamentally, at the core level, a woman has always been one half of society and the other half she raises on her laps. And so the responsibility of a woman to bring up the right kind of children and give them the right sort of, what should we say, ethic of building peace and nurturing them is what makes us natural peacemakers. Is because we, yes. we know how yeah. to create, mm -hmm. reduce conflict in the home because whenever conflict rises, a mother is usually a good person who's trying to calm things down between warring factions within the family. So I think that we just inherently are trained and have this ability to reach across in trying to build peace within the home. Why women have not really been taken seriously to play this role actively in politics and in conflict resolutions, I think that has to do with pretty much why women are, why there's a glass ceiling for women in other areas as well. Because maybe traditionally people thought that women should not venture out, you know, she should just, her role should just be in the home, it should not be on the outside. I think that's changing because more and more people, like yourself, and many men in our community have recognized the role that we play and are actively supporting people like us now 
And the moment people see us emulating something and we are recognized for that role, I think more people will recognize that women need to be given a seat at the table. But the, the question today, though, and yeah, I agree with you 100%. We look at various conflicts today raging in the Middle East and other right. places. And we see a very limited role that women are playing in the search for solutions. Mm. Men, by and large, have taken charge and continue to take charge of these issues. And you don't hear voices coming from Syria, Syrian mm. women. Mm -hmm. We hear voices coming from Iraqi women or Yemenite women or even women in, from Western countries crying out mm -hmm. for solutions, crying out for getting that, the, the sensitivities, the need the, that women mm -hmm. can project. Mm -hmm. And men has, have really been almost unable to do mm -hmm. just that. Mm -hmm. And like you just said, whereas we the women were dedicated themselves by and large to the home, to resolving issues within the home, raising the right. kids, providing them with the kind of culture, belief system that was essential to raising a healthier and better community. Mm -hmm. But it has not been taken beyond that. Yeah. And what we want to do now, that I am preaching certainly, mm -hmm. is that as time has come to move beyond the women's role at home, right. we have to take it further because it's a significant asset. Mm -hmm. And in search for a solution for the conflict, women need to play a role. You know, you, you remember very well the role of women in finding a resolution to the Northern Ireland conflict. When yeah. finally they said right. enough is enough. Right, right, right. So uh, what, what would you do? What are the things that you would like to do to promote in order to awaken men and women alike mm -hmm. that this time has come yep. for us to do more? Because look at this intractable conflict consuming us just about everywhere, mm -hmm. and women are still silent. Yeah. Well, I think that the, um, I think there there are a couple of things going on. First, um, men have been largely responsible for creating peace treaties because they are the ones that are sitting at these tables where peace treaties are being made and governments are negotiating terms of peace agreements and uh, and there's a lot of power behind that because there is an entire institution of a country behind that but women have always played a role in reducing conflict to begin with so in other words women have been doing it but it's at the grassroots level and it's almost unseen and they are attenuating making sure that conflict doesn't arise and they are trying to you know calm the waters this work has been going on i can cite so many women that are doing this work in muslim countries all over the world i mean you talk about yemen you know we had tawakkul you know who is the nobel laureate we had this young girl in egypt Asma Mahfouz, who was the first one who called for the revolution in Egypt, she barely got any notice, and the Google guy got all the notice, right? In Afghanistan, I know women who are putting themselves on the front lines to make sure that the children are getting the education, and they are, you know, taking survivors of rape and war and giving them a, a chance at life. This work is going on all over the world, but it's not taken seriously because it's very much at the grassroots, and it's not at the bilateral exactly it's decision. a more some on macro level yeah so people think that the government to government is more important but really what's important is the societal piece is equally important so it has to be taken just as seriously 
as the other one. Exactly, but the question is, why is it not taken so seriously? That is, women are, like you just suggested, and many women in various countries are active, very much active in these areas, in the search for better community, mm -hmm. more, ha more harmony, uh, more peaceful, uh, and they're doing this legwork behind. But in the final analysis, by and large, men are sitting at the negotiating table. Right. 98% of the time, occasionally you see a women sitting at the negotiating table, and so the input of women are not being felt at these t negotiating tables, albeit the men may be consulting their wives or, <laughs> fr yeah. or girlfriends yeah. behind the scene. Yeah. But nevertheless, it is the men who are speaking. It is the men who are representing their country, their society, wh whatever it is that they represent. And Although what you just said is true, but how do we take that? Well, I'm fighting for it. I want to see. Mm -hmm. I want to see a woman charging in the street. I want to see the women saying enough is enough. Like I've been advocating Israeli-Palestinian conflict, and I think where are the women? Israelis and Palestinian women ought to be going out to the street by the tens of thousands and say. For how much longer can we keep this bloody conflict going on? There Why are women. There are women. The problem is they're not getting the kind of resources that they need to mobilize and to create the kind of army that you're asking for. So, so a very good example of this was women who took charge in Liberia. You know the war in Liberia yes. that was going on, that raging war where children had become child soldiers and everything else. And this Christian woman, devout Christian woman, you know, had an epiphany. Something came from God. She had to do something. Uh, yes. And then she didn't know what she was going to do, so she asked her mother, you know, I want to do this. And her mother said, well, why don't you also ask your Muslim sisters? See, maybe, uh. maybe you know, you can get some ideas. And they paired up together, and they came together as a group, and they just basically sat there and put up these peace signs, said, we want peace. They didn't demand anything other than peace. And little by little, this little army that was literally like no more than 20 women grew to be like an entire football field and then they eventually overthrew, you know, right, Charles, right. Uh, uh, I don't remember his last name, and brought in and voted for uh, Sir uh, Leaf. Sir Leaf. Yes, I, mean, yes. I don't, don't ask me to do Anyway. It. It's not my day. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the president, a woman president, they yeah. voted for a woman president. They all voted for her and they asked the children to give back the guns and this was the power of women coming together, but nobody, but, but it was really their motivation and their guts that they went out. They barely had any money, and they did it with a force, but they were very strategic. They were very smart because they were being led by a very strategic woman who made sure that they had a friend in the media who was actually reporting on what they were doing. So every day, this woman friend who, who happened to have a radio show was announcing, and this, this announcement was getting out there into communities, and more women were joining them. And they had a friend in the police department who was constantly telling them, your enemies are coming to attack you, so they would disperse. So they actually were very strategic in making sure that they were protected, that they were not under harm. Yeah. So, so that is an example. She did win the Nobel Peace Prize. She was awarded for that. But uh, I think more stories like that, gradually people are beginning to see that women need to be at these peace-building tables or peacemaking tables. And uh, I, for one, you know, in, in the Muslim world, I don't know why women, more women aren't being taken seriously because we have a lot to offer. I know from my own experience. Well, of course, yes. In Afghanistan, yeah. what we have done, the work that right, we have done. Right. 
and uh, the work I'm about to do is going to be a very good indicator of how women can do this in very creative ways. You see, we don't also, women do things in a very creative way. But let's take the example you just cited in Liberia. And there was a success story of women rising to the top and making a real difference. Right. Now, what were the advantages or the circumstances or the conditions that existed that made it possible for her to do what she's done? And if these conditions, circumstances, requirements exist elsewhere, where this conflict, I mentioned Israel-Palestine, mm -hmm. mm -hmm. or in Syria or elsewhere, so is there any something unique about the Liberian conflict mm -hmm. where it gave the rise to women to say to do something about it? Why is it missing elsewhere? Yeah. yeah. Albeit they share pretty much similar culture. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that the cultural context is really important. So you cannot have one size fits all because it doesn't, right? In different societies, condition of women are different. So in the Liberian situation, at least this is what I took away from the movie that I saw and after meeting, uh, after meeting this, uh, this woman who, uh, Lima, I think that the role of the African woman is considered to, you know, she's a, it's a, it's a matriarchal, you know, yeah. it may be a patriarchal yeah. society, but woman <clears throat> commands a lot of respect and, and can demand certain things, you know, they're very strong, they are committed. I mean, they were the ones who called the child soldiers over and said, come over here, give me your gun. And the child soldiers were like shaking in their booties. In fact, it was the UN that was trying to take the, the, the guns away from the children. And it was the women who actually succeeded in getting the guns. Mm -hmm. So then the UN realized, oh, my God, the women are really good at this. How are they doing this? And so we've not been you, able to disarm people. So, right. so the women would just say, come over here, yeah. <laughs> you know. This is this. Is this. But again, in your capacity, right. and this is really what I'd like to do, what it is that you can say, preach, talk about, write, that's going to create a greater awareness. I know you've been doing this kind of work. But, you know, for someone like myself, we've been dealing with conflict resolution for for more than three, almost four decades. To me, this is this is one of the issues that has really been bothering me for mm -hmm. so long now. Mm -hmm. And and when I speak uh, in conferences, meeting, where are the women? Women's role is mm -hmm. so critical. Mm -hmm. Where are they? <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I said, what what would you do? What is going to take? Let me just say, I, I wrote a piece a while ago, and I said, just imagine. If 50,000 women, Palestinian women, 50,000 women, Israelis, walk in the street. And yeah, if they did what the Liberian no, women did. Yes. No <laughs> guns, no clubs, right. nothing. Just a peaceful. And just walk or, or for the Palestinian walk and sit down on the roads that lead to various settlements. Mm -hmm. What would Israeli soldiers do? Women in Israel would do the same. Why is it not happening? Is there less motivation by these women that are not le less motivated than the Liberian women, what is missing? Is the conflict doesn't doesn't matter? Is the uh, issue is no is, is too much complacency? What is why what where is the difference? What why does it matter? Why is it, something like this can happen in Liberia, but it's not happening in in, in places where such conflict been raging for so many decades? Yeah. What, from my perspective, what is missing there? Why aren't we seeing such women movements in these areas to say, 
like I said, enough is enough. We're not going to take it anymore. Yeah. We don't want to see our children die mm. for no reason. Yeah, yeah. I think that some of it may have to do with what they think they will lose. In other words, they might lose more than they can gain. I think it's a question of... Meaning what? Well, how, how so, so if they have nothing to begin with, like... Will they? Will they? Will they lose? Will there be an attack on them, on their families? The fear of the repercussion might be so looming so large in their minds that they don't feel that they can do anything. You know that they really can't make a change. So the only way you can do it is if you if you create solidarity to such an extent that they really genuinely believe and that is why the organizing element has to come into this because numbers do matter well you know, of course in, in the case of liberia when when they were like 18 women or so uh, this charles um, his his army walked by and they started laughing at the women they said these this is supposed to be a threat these 18 women or whatever they are sitting out there and then when the numbers grew they were like oh my god what's going on over here and they were able to take them seriously and i think that but somebody was funding that organizing. There was money coming in. T-shirts were being bought. Somebody was saying, we're behind you. Go ahead. So, so, so people, although there might be leaders that genuinely know and care, and I have met Palestinian and Israeli women. They have actually come right into this room. I have sat down with them. And their perennial complaint is that they want to do something, but they can't because there's a lack of resources and th there's no way for them to mobilize the two groups. And these are bereaved mothers, and you know, on both sides, bereaved mothers. And the Liberian women have a greater resource than the Palestinian Israelis? Well, they might, but together they don't have the resources. In other words, you know, if, 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 if there, there is not... Uh, no, there's no one big foundation or people who are funding this activity. You need to fund peace the same way you fund war. You have to fund no, peace. I, I, you know? I understand that, but you know, um, look at the because revolution. once they know they're secure, their families are secure. They will be able to go out. People are afraid of, for their children. They're afraid for their livelihood. They're afraid for their families and and the repercussions. Well, this may may very well be the case, but you know, I think. I personally don't believe that. Don't, don't think it's a question of resources. And I tell you why. Look at the, however, succeeded did not succeed revolution in uh, Egypt. There was no leadership. Mm -hmm. There was no re funding. Tens of hundreds of thousands, millions went to the streets. You mean the Tahrir Square? Tahrir Square. No, there was funding Tahrir Square. A lot of the funding who, was going who, who, from who U.S. foundations were funding a lot of democracy people. Well, so but they it's were really, it was very, very minimal. I mean, really, I mean, to, considering the hundreds of millions, thousands of... It's true, the hundreds and millions did come out. Uh, millions mm -hmm. actually came out. And the funding, given the size of the demonstration right. and what happened, was truly minuscule. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But there, there was, the motivation was different. Right. The motivation was 30 years or 40 years of subjugation is way too long, we're not going to take it any mm -hmm. longer. Mm -hmm. So, so resource is not necessarily the the effect, the major factor. It right. helps if it's there, but it should not, in my view, in any way. And I'd love to to get your input on this. In my view, does not and should not be impeding these type of efforts. That mm. is a word of mouth. You know, we are not going to take it anymore. Mm. What does it going to take? So, I want to I want to begin to think in terms of 
let's not find it, and I'm not suggesting you have, mm. find an excuse for that because there are no resources. But sitting at this desk where you are, you want to advocate that. You be a believer in that. Mm -hmm. You want to empower women. Yeah. I think women can do it. I really can do it. Now, let, without, let, let's, let's find out. If you were to write a, a manual today, mm -hmm. a couple of pages, man, I'll say, this is what's going to take to mobilize women, mm -hmm. right? If you think in those terms, and I secondly cannot guess you, I second guess you because you know better than anyone else what it takes. What would you be advocating? Resources notwithstanding, necessary. But we're going to need to think in terms of creative thinking. What is going to what, to get these women to, to come to the realization as the Liberian did or the North, uh, uh, Northern England did that we have to do something about it? Because I think current conflicts raging in so many different places I don't see how they're going to come to an end unless we add this another critically important dimension. Yeah. Women voice, women power. Yeah, so I think that in my work, what the success comes from first defining what the conflict is, what is the source of the conflict. So in other words, you have to do a little excavating because, because especially long-term conflicts, over time, you don't even know what the conflict is about because the conflict, the face of the conflict, the name of the conflict, it changes, it becomes something completely different because you have different stakeholders who have stepped in, you know, and you don't even know what the original conflict was all about. So first you have to excavate and really go deep and find out what is the source of the conflict and who's benefiting from it and who's, you know, what, what are you willing, what can you bring to the table to that particular conflict. So in the case of Afghanistan, for instance, 30 years of war, raging on, having direct impact on children's education, having direct impact on uh, not only education, women's rights, because women are the first ones that suffer when, when you have con long-standing conflicts. So, and then if you look at Afghanistan in the 60s, you know, you had a very progressive, modern society. Mm -hmm. Same people, same DNA, and then you have a complete subjugation and you had a society that was very, very uh, progressive and modern. So then when we look at this conflict, we realize that actually the Taliban are so armed to the teeth that, uh, that they, have, they have received more armament and that the work that we did, the United States, the work that we did over time, one of the reasons why we went into Afghanistan so we could disarm the Taliban and actually when we left, they, they have more arms than they had previously because of, you know, over the years, so much arms have flown into that country. So you have so much armament that there's no way we can compete as women with no arms, no nothing. There's no way we yeah, can compete. Yeah, but we're not talking, certainly I'm not talking about arming women. I mean, no, the no, strength so, of women so what I'm saying is, is in their voice, not a, in the arms that they carry. Yeah, but it, it is in their voice, but when they when they get out there and they put their voice they'll be gunned down in two seconds what is the point of giving your life for something that you know you're going to get killed your children are going to get but killed by whom would they be gunned down I mean if you're talking by the Taliban no we're well, talking about a conflict zone like Afghanistan well Afghanistan I mean the status of women there is really uh, uh, dismal I mean women there, traditionally speaking. And no, no, but I'm saying, no, it's not traditionally. Like, that's the misnomer. In the 60s, they were no different than other modern societies. Well, I mean, under the Taliban regime, they were totally treated differently. But that's what I'm saying. Yes. So you have a group that came in there, subjugated women, 
took out education because they want power and they think that the way to maintain power is to get rid of women and to keep women subjugated because that's how they can control society. And so, so you have a conflict that has gotten so muddied that, you know, you have to unravel that. So we decided that the best way for us to unravel that. But if you leave Afghanistan for, for a while... No, but I, but you're asking me what is how do we resolve conflict? No, I right? understand, but because no, on this very issue, on this very issue, culturally speaking, and I'm certainly not demeaning Arab societies. I come from one of them, so mm -hmm. uh, by all means, um, the women do not play significant role in uh, most Arab societies, be that the Gulf states, be that Gulf states more so, but take take Saudi Arabia, even more advanced societies, even countries like um, Egypt. The role of women is is, is not, not as significant, obviously, as compared to men, and that's from a cultural perspective. That's how how it is. So again, we're going to have to, you know, have to. How do we change that? Can we change that? Uh, how do you get the, the women more involved? Again, in order not provide them by providing them necessarily the money or the or the or the guns. Well, what other means by which we can, in fact, promote the notion that you women have a power, a hidden, inherent power? It's there. You possess it. Use it. How do we, how can we get this power out, exact it, for, so that the women know, I am powerful and I can do something with my voice, far greater, more powerful than what a man can do with a gun? Yeah. I mean, I'd like you to, because you you are uh, uh, you are a force yeah. in this area, and and I'd like you to see, you know, like like he like you like to write. So he as a man, this is what needs to be done. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I think in the case of Muslim women, it's a very easy um, case to make with women because we inherently are taught through our scriptures that we are stewards of God on earth, men and women equally that we have a responsibility to be to play an ambassadorial role on behalf of God on this earth. So we are stewards of the environment, we're stewards of justice, we're stewards of all the things. So, so Islam does not say that men are the only stewards. It actually says that both of you have been created as my ambassadors and my vice regent. So oftentimes women have forgotten that that they play an equal role when it comes to that responsibility because you you know when you when you leave this earth and you go back you will be told how did you discharge your responsibilities and so this is where my motivation comes from and this is where women who are faith-based women who are really fighting the good fight know that they're inherently doing something that where they are carrying out the responsibility that is that is endowed upon them so that is a very that is a that is very powerful when you think that you are doing the work of the divine and that you are inspired and that you have a responsibility. So you're not just trying to resolve a small conflict. You're actually doing this, the work that you were sent to do. It's your purpose in life. So this is where the motivation for many women is coming from, whether it's resolving conflict or it's to lift women or it's okay to, let me so, so this is yeah. this is the power yeah. this is where the power lies let, let me let me reduce it this practical um, example that I'd like you to to elaborate on suppose you days have been asked to speak to a group of women 
in a country that has a significant conflict. Pick the country, be that uh, Palestine, Israel, uh, Syria, Iraq, and you're addressing a group of women. I'm not challenging you. I really want you, mm-hmm. want you to have that, that input. And you're addressing this a group of women, a thousand women sitting in front of you, and you try to instill in them the notion, the idea, you are powerful. You've got to do something about what's happening in, the, in front of you in this society, the bloodshed, the killing, the destruction. What would you say to them to evoke that reaction, to, to make them feel, I have a role to play and I'm going to have to play it? What it is that you want to impart with them? Yeah. Well, as I mentioned, this is where my work always goes down to that cellular level of who you are as a human being. And what is it that is your responsibility? And you have to find out what is the mandate of your life and that every person has come with a purpose and that you need to find what that purpose is because each person has a different purpose. So it can't be the same for everyone. But women inherently are, you know, they are called the seat of compassion because the womb is is called compassion in Arabic. That's what, mm-hmm. it's, it's got the same root word. And it, they, 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 they bring in life into this world. So inherently, you know, they are good at not only bringing life, nurturing life, but also saving life. So, so, so women are the, the perfect carriers of, 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 this, of this work. And when I speak to women, I remind them of that responsibility that they have to be the good steward and to, and to do the work for the sake of the greater good, not just for themselves, because they are equally empowered by God to carry out this work. In other words, if they decide to do this work, they will be helped from all kinds of ways. Aid is going to come from all kinds of ways, whether you, you know, the moment you put your mind to it that you are going to do this work, you will find the right kind of partners coming forward. So in our case, we decided that it's really important for us to work with people that influence society. And that, you know, if, if we have to really create change within the Muslim communities, we have to really engage people who are influential in our communities, and that's our imams. So although we might be women and we can do the work with women, why should we do the work only within women's groups? Why shouldn't we, you know, reach out to the men folk in our community and say, you need to come on board with us? Yeah, but you, you can do that, but when you invoke faith here, I have concern about that. Faith is important, and, and if you are a believer, a true believer, um, you can overcome sometimes many difficulties mm-hmm. because you believe you can. But when faith is used for the precise opposite cause, used to exploit, used to exp- to kill, as ISIS has been doing, as the Taliban has been doing, as others have been doing, then faith become a liability rather than asset. Which in, in this case, as you mentioned here, yes, women, everybody is accountable at one point. But if we were just to base their the need for the involvement on faith alone, probably that's not going to go too far. Not in our current environment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's what I'm trying to you because say yeah you know you're a believer you have to believe that the, the, the goodness of human being you have to you know that killing is not right you know that 
torture is not right. You got to do something about it. This is all uh, clear. It's a given. This can be preached to the men as well. But I want to. Well, I would like if if you help me out to identify what it is that you tell these one thousand women they can do tomorrow to begin a process to begin to take the first step in order to galvanize, make it together. This is a conflict. We cannot continue with it. Mm-hmm. What would you would tell them? Well, first, they really have to believe that they can do it because unless well, they again, fundamentally believe... I want you believe, to tell them yeah. that. How do you tell them? Why shouldn't they believe it? They, their kids are getting died. Mm-hmm. Are they getting killed? Mm-hmm. They, their kids are, are getting hurt and injured. Uh, houses are being destroyed. So they, they are confronted with this horrible m- m- reality day mm-hmm. in and day out. Mm-hmm. So they believe they need something need to be done. Right. And, and, and this is what I find, you know, uh, a person like you who has the voice, I would like to see what it is that you tell these people, get up, mm-hmm. do something, mm-hmm. what it is that they can do. How do you motivate them to do that? Well, sometimes it depends on the context of, of the person because, like I said, you know, people have to be inspired by role models, and um, they, if if you if you if if they know that there is somebody that they can emulate in their work, it's just a little bit easier for them. So sometimes I I have to tell the stories of women in the past who have really been who have moved mountains, and and people didn't know that they had this ability. And so if so if a woman feels that she is repressed and, you know, I went to a shelter once, I'll give you a story. I went to a shelter once and I was asked to speak to this. It wasn't a thousand women, but it was maybe 20 women in a shelter. And I was asked to say something that would inspire them. And I looked at these women and I said, this is not the kind of audience I speak to. What am I going to tell these people? I'm not accustomed to speaking to people like who are so down and out and have beaten and have been beaten up. So I looked around the room, and there were all these women with little babies on their laps, and and I decided that I was basically going to, you know, be like a spiritual mentor to them because I knew that that would be the right approach for these women because they were looking for something higher than themselves because they had been so beaten up. So I reminded them about who they were, that they were created in the divine image, and I know that this may not work for everybody who's a secular person, but it certainly works for Muslim people because Muslims inherently are still very committed to their faith. And the language of faith is is something resonates, that yeah. it resonates and it translates very well and it goes deep. So, so I reminded them that, you know, no one can lift their hand and hit you because, you know, they're hitting divinity in the sense that why would you tolerate that, you know? Why would you tolerate anybody hitting you? Because, you know, your face is is that of a divine image. And then this woman asked me, <clears throat> she said, but I don't know how to take care of myself. And, you know, I, I, I need money for my children. I can't be independent. And, you know, they had real issues. So I reminded them about how the prophet's wife was a merchant herself. She was a working woman. And uh, Islam gives all the women the right to own wealth, to accumulate wealth. And why aren't you doing that? Why aren't you working? So, you know, she she told me that her husband told her that she couldn't work. And I said, no. I said, you have been given the right from God to work, to accumulate wealth. And I had to literally cite certain verses and explain to her that this was her right, that she could go ahead and, you know, start her own business and, and do something so she could be independent 
of this abusive husband. And so I left. I didn't know if I had any impact. And then in December of that year, I got this little greeting cards in the mail, and they were Christmas greeting cards, and they were all made by hand. And these women had started a little cooperative mm -hmm. where they had created these little things, and then there was a little sign that said, by the way, we buy a Metro card by selling these. <laughs> so it was their path to independence. So in each case, you really have to look at the situation of what's going on. Well, of course, of yeah. course. I mean, that's why I didn't take a specific example. I mean, if um, again, it could be that uh, any kind of conflict. This is a conflict in Syria. We know what it's all about. Mm -hmm. I mean, we know the conflict between and a facing group of Israeli women mm -hmm. or a group of they all have <clears throat> pretty much suffering the same thing mm -hmm. from the same right. problem, same ailments, same issues. Uh, and so, uh, there's no question how you address such a group of women from Palestine right. is going to be different. You address a group of women coming from uh, Scandinavia. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, n n needless to say, but this is, this is my my point here is that what is this is precisely what's missing. That is, women themselves, in my view, I, I could be wrong. Please correct me. Have not developed. The, perhaps the confidence, they can in fact have that power and they can project it. And we need people like yourself, many and others, who will come out and scream and shout, we've got, we've got what it takes, let's exhibit it, let's get it out of it. I think that voice is missing. Yeah. That voice is missing. Right. I mean, look at America, right? thousand hundred years ago we didn't have the right to most anything right no right to vote no right to higher education uh no right to own a bank account uh and and black women were enslaved blacks were enslaved and it was women who stepped into the fray unafraid and said why is a black man enslaved and you know abolitionist movement began and then, then slowly and gradually, that grew into the right to vote and grew into the suffragette movement where women were saying, wait a minute, we're Christians and we were always told that we're created in the divine image, but yet, and the state says all men are created equal, and how come we are left out? So they, they, they once again, they looked at the hypocrisy of what was going on in this country, and then the church had been quiet for so many years when it came to slavery, right? Why was a black man enslaved for so many years? Was this a Christian thing? How is it that Christianity justified enslavement of black people for so many years? So, but it took these women who were devout Christians who kind of delved into it very deep and they got to the kernel of the idea and they basically said no more and they started organizing, they started making these myths where they were talking to each other, like knitting things and saying, you know, and this organizing grew and their husbands who wanted to do something, didn't know how to do, you know, to, to go up against the status quo, got empowered by their own wives. They started organizing with other men and slowly but gradually the emancipation of, of slavery happened. And it happened because of women. It would have never happened in this country because no man would have dared to go against it. There were six or seven presidents that were slave owners. They never dared to do anything about it. So the problem is these women get written out of history books because nobody takes them seriously. 
And how many people know about the suffragette movement except the women, women like me who study these women to yeah. get inspired but by them? But the question is, why do we take this into and, 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 and make it so that everybody understands the role of the women? I mean, this is exactly what you're saying. How many people actually are fully aware of what you just said? How many women, and men for that matter, unless we studied as many of us did study the, right, right. The, that particular era and what the women have, have done. What I'm, you know, my, my focus today being conflict resolution, and I, I feel like I started with this discussion. Uh, I want to see more, more and more women getting involved in, in, in the search for solution. And that's why I'm asking this, you know, the question is, how, how, how do you address this woman when you tell them, take a specific group with a specific, by, by, you know, generally similar culture, similar ideas, and you want to inspire them to do something about it. And this is really where, where I'm coming from. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I want, I'm searching for avenues. So I'll tell you something. One of the most powerful things that work with Muslim women when you were talking about if you're in front of a thousand people, what would you say? is that Muslim women around the world take it for granted that American women have had all these rights for all these years because America is the vanguard of human rights and mm -hmm. we talk about it. And and so when I go in there and say, a hundred years ago in the United States, women didn't have this right, this right, this right, this right. And seventh century Arabia, women got these rights, these rights, these rights, these rights. So we compare the two. And it's stunning to women that somehow American women you know, today have attained all these rights that they didn't have, but yet women, Muslim women who got these rights in 7th century, all these rights have been stripped away from them. So then I tell them what is possible because of what women's movements were able to do and how they have been able to advance. And so when they see that other people have succeeded, they take strength from that. And then they can model their own success around that and model their own initiatives around that. So sometimes people just need to, uh, to, to see inspiring stories of what is possible. And especially when it comes to Islam, they look at Christian models, Jewish models, because we're the youngest faith and it's always easier for us to look at what did Christian women do, what are Jewish women doing, and what, what can Muslim women do to model their struggle. Because the struggles are the same, only the situation is slightly different, and the era might be different, but it's the same exact struggles. So whether it's women's rights or whether it's, you know, conflict in societies, I think that women have a significant role to play. There's no question. So, <laughs> no, thank you so much. Mm -hmm. I really appreciate it because um, just just switch it a little bit to the to the the phenomenon we're being, we're living through now, our radicalization and 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 how women are also recruited mm -hmm. for this uh, horrifying cause, so to speak, um, be that ISIS and others. Where do you see, from your perspective, the, what attracts women to join these type of groups? Yeah. So most people think that um, women have just one or two factors to join, but our research shows that men and women have similar motivations uh, for them to join, especially millennial women who are growing up in Western societies. They really have grown up with this notion that they can create a change, just like every millennial thinks they can create a change. 
within their society. So some of it is driven by wanting to topple the tyrannies, <laughs> like, mm-hmm. like you know, let's topple some tyrannies. Yeah. And uh, another factor might be um, there's too much injustice around the Muslim world and no one's doing anything about it and I can do something about it. And that's another motivation. The other motivation is, you know, I am oppressed in my own society. I don't belong here. Everybody is thinks that I come from a misogynist faith. And on the other side, I'm being offered comfort and sisterhood and brotherhood. And that's where I belong. And, um, you know, another factor is I don't have agency. I have overbearing parenting. And I'm an individual and I have the right to do what I want to do. And the other side is offering that you can do whatever you want if you come here. So there are all these different motivations and they and they vary from culture to culture, society to society, individual to individual. And it's very complex, but really the the root of it is that people want to create a change and they think that somehow ISIS is offering them a solution and then they join that group and when they arrive there, they realize that they've made the biggest error of their life. But it's too late because mm-hmm. then there's no exit for them. So it's a really tragic story because these people are getting recruited with all kinds of promise and, and, and a wonderful future. But then they discover that when they get there, they're actually trapped. So this is why we're doing the work that we're doing is we wanted to really unearth this whole phenomena of how people are being recruited at the ground level and what promises they are being made so we can show people clearly this is what you're being told, and this is actually false with real evidence, with real research, so they can see it for themselves, so we can prevent somebody else from joining, and those who are in jail can be rehabilitated so, so you know, with real evidence. So we're launching a big project called Wise Up, Knowledge and Extremism, because we believe that there's a knowledge gap, and there's a lot of confusion, and with the spread of internet and social media, it's very easy to peddle falsehood mm-hmm. and make it seem like it's it, it's very real. True, yes. So fake news becomes real news. So people <clears throat> cannot decipher anymore what Islam is and what it's not because it's being given to you in bite-sized information and it's being propagandized in such a way that you really think it's true. So, so it's the work of people like me and scholars around me that have to come together to show uh, the truth versus the, the, the falsehood. And how this falsehood can destroy your life forever, you know. Not only destroy your life, it destroys your siblings' lives, it destroys your parents' lives, it destroys your entire family. So you're not the only one who's getting destroyed. Because the stigma is so great for a family that whose child has gone that they became isolated from society. So it's a really, really tragic, tragic situation. But I hope that with this campaign that we're rolling out, nationally as well as internationally that will be able to at least influence so what what is the if you were to describe the campaign in a few sentences what it is and what do we like to achieve so um it we are publishing a book 400 page book which has all the research in it so so one can just and it's very accessibly it's written in a very easy accessible way then there will be a website that people can go into so they can find information on the website there will be a campaign which we will be doing around the country where we will go have a face-to-face conversation with people. So, people so who's can, your target, target audience? We have multiple target audiences. The terrorists have all kinds of target audiences. And they, 
and 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 they uh, you know message out to different people. So so similarly, we've also designed this toolkit for multiple audiences, and we have families in mind because families are struggling. We have young people in mind because they don't they are wrestling with this information. We have the policymakers in mind because they are making policy. We have religious leaders in mind because religious leaders can inspire people and clarify information. We have interfaith audiences in mind because they are our greatest advocate, but they need the tools from us. And we have the general public in mind because general public, if they perceive that Islam inherently is a religion that has certain issues or promotes violence, they need to be uh, told. So when talking about the public, and also talking about the public outside this country, in the Arab world, Oh, well, yeah, was, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what you're talking about. Yeah, well, I'm talking about the American general public, but yes. I'm also talking about the general public as in the global community because I have been traveling and already people are telling me, please, we need to translate this into our language. You know, we mm -hmm. really desperately need this. So we want to translate it into Arabic, into, you know, uh, various languages, French and other other languages that where people can take this tool and use it in their own communities. I, I had a imam in France who told me this needs to become an application so I can make sure all my kids have it downloaded so when a recruiter comes they know the difference so this is the level that we need to get to um, but we could not have done this by ourselves we are a woman led organization community peace peace, uh, peace building but we worked with 60 other scholars and imams okay, good. and mm -hmm. experts and Muslims and non-Muslims to put this toolkit together great I wanted you to speak about it. That's what. Thank you. I'll give it a little promotion. Yeah, it's just called uh, WiseUpReport.org, and we will be launching on October 26th in Washington D.C. And then we'll be going around the country. Terrific. Well, thank you so much. Thank yes, you so much. Thank you. Thank Pleasure. You. Thank you for listening to this episode on the issues. You can find this podcast on my SoundCloud page, and stay tuned to my social media accounts for the latest analysis and announcements.